0: Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Second Chronicles 18, and we'll read through this chapter and also the first three verses of uh, chapter 19. Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. After some years he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed sheep and oxen in abundance for him and the people who were with him, and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth-Gilead. So Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered him, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will be with you in the, in the war. Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, four hundred men, and said to them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he never prophesies good concerning me but always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called one of his officers and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, clothed in their robes, sat each on his throne, and they sat at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Janana had made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encouraged the king, Therefore, please let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And he said, Go and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and his left And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit from the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I return in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him, saying, Fight with no one, small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So it was, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, It is the king of Israel. Therefore they surrounded him to attack. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. For so it was when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. The battle increased that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. And about the time of sunset, he died. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have repaired your heart. To see God, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have uh, two sermons in mind concerning Christ the King uh, from psalm forty five that I hope to preach before Christmas time, uh, but before that, I have two more sermons on Jehoshaphat. We've called him a godly king who cared for God's people, but like all kings. Uh, also the best kings over God's people, other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Like all other kings, Jehoshaphat was a sinner. And while his godly uh, features give us a dim preview of God's true anointed Savior, our Lord Jesus, his faults show just how much we need such a Savior King, such a King which no other King could ever match. Now this passage uh, before us is uh, full of instruction and uh, two sermons themselves are hardly adequate to cover all uh, the the lessons and the uh, interesting characteristics of this passage. For one thing, we have here before us uh, the clearest insight into what is uh, a, a rather serious uh, critical flaw, you might say, in King Jehoshaphat. And it's a flaw that marked his reign. We'll see it reappear in other instances. Uh, secondly, we have the account here of the dreadful end of the reign of this wicked uh, king over the t- uh, ten northern tribes of Israel, uh, King Ahab. And then uh, we also have a most uh, emphatic proclamation and fulfillment of God's word that that puts these things into perspective. And it's all with dramatic detail that makes this really one of the most fascinating uh, stories in the Bible. And I can actually remember a sermon on this passage that I heard. It was over 40 years ago and uh, from a preacher that I only heard once, but I, I could still remember very clearly some of the details of that sermon uh, because it's such a fascinating passage and it was a message that was so effective in communicating uh, the teaching of God's Word that we have before us uh this this morning and also this this uh, evening my plan is to uh, preach two sermons on this passage the first two points this morning and then the second two in our evening service in this passage we have the lord protecting his king a compromised king as we shall see and he does that as he fulfills his word and we begin by considering this disastrous an unholy alliance that Jehoshaphat entered into with Ahab. We're told that by marriage, Jehoshaphat allied himself with Ahab, there in verse 2. And that's a reference to the fact that Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram uh, married Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, that wicked queen. And so he became allied with uh, the house of uh what what certainly is the most wicked dynasty in israel that that uh, ever ruled we have an alliance with the seed of david and this wicked house of of ahab and uh the rest of this chapter and this disastrous campaign against syria is just one example of the very very bad consequences that resulted from this uh, this alliance, this fellowship, to use the language of the New Testament, this fellowship between the temple of God and with idols. As we'll see, Jehoshaphat was repeatedly entangled in uh, conflicting loyalties. And it really begins here. This was a huge factor, this alliance that he entered through his son. And it, it truly left a stain on his record. And it comes to a kind of horrible climax in, uh, in, uh, chapter 22, verse 10, where we read more of this, uh, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. Uh, when, uh, Jehoshaphat's grandson was killed, uh, Athaliah, she attempted to exterminate all the royal seed. And she was successful, except for one boy, a little boy that was hidden away. But this wicked queen wanted to completely wipe out the line of David. And she declared herself to be queen. It gives you an insight into what a, a terrible uh, result issued from this compromise of Jehoshaphat. In fact, in 1 Kings, where there is given a summary of Jehoshaphat's rule. Yes, good things are said about him. Very important good things. But it's also mentioned that he made peace with the house of Ahab. And this made it hard for him to resist Ahab's invitation that we read there in, uh, in verse 19 of chapter 18, where uh, Ahab asked him, will you go up with me against Ramoth Gilead, go to war against the Syrians in order to recapture Ramoth Gilead. Now you think about, uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, here was an honored guest at, uh, Ahab's, uh, ivory palace. We're told that he made a palace of ivory there in Samaria. And, uh, he is feasted there and he's treated like a brother, like a brother King seated together alongside of Ahab, uh, in their Royal robes there in the gate of Samaria with all the prophets, uh, before them, their nations had been at odds. They had been at war, but now there is peace. And, uh, didn't they share a lot in common didn't they share the same history weren't these 12 tribes at one time gathered at the foot of mount sinai hearing the word of god together didn't god bring these 12 tribes together into the promised land of canaan hadn't they been united together under the reign of uh, of david and then of solomon they were brothers in terms of their ethnic, national, and religious identity, at least formerly, so much in common. Ramoth Gilead, well, that was from the tribe of Dan. We learn kings that Ahab said to his servants, "Ram, Ramoth Gilead is ours, and we haven't taken it from the Syrians." And it's high time, in effect, that we do. And he seeks uh, to enlist the help of of Jehoshaphat to. Uh, rescue this uh, place from the tribe. Actually, it was the tribe of Gad that Ramoth Gilead belonged to. And it was a critical place. Strategically, it was an important place. That's why it was prob- probably valued by the Syrians. In any military sense, it was a valuable uh, place to have. And Jehoshaphat, uh, he himself is accepted by by Ahab, treated in a kind way. Uh, shouldn't he reciprocate? shouldn't he respond uh accordingly and also then treat Ahab as as an equal wasn't he rather beholden to him because of his hospitality and his his brotherly and kind uh treatment wouldn't it be the loving thing to do to cooperate with him against the Syrians Yeah, Ahab has some problems, but by showing him this respect and working together with him, couldn't Jehoshaphat win him back to the Lord? Couldn't Jehoshaphat have a saving influence on this other king? You can see how those kinds of considerations could motivate Jehoshaphat to to go along with this plan. Well, Jehoshaphat, he shows a kind of naive optimism toward Ahab. We're told that Ahab persuaded him uh, to go. A better rendering, it's actually found in other translations, is that he induced him, he enticed him. It was a bad idea. And that word more faithfully captures what's going on here. Ahab induced him to engage in this campaign contrary to what is right and wise. Jehoshaphat fell for it. I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. He failed to take into account, didn't he, the drastic difference between idolatry because the house of Ahab was characterized by Baal worship and idolatry of other kinds as well. And Jehoshaphat failed to take into account the drastic difference between idolatry and the worship of God. The drastic difference between those who honor God and those who oppose him and his ways. That was Ahab. And he failed to adequately consider the contrast between God's relationship to the wicked and to the righteous. And this kind of naive optimism, a failure to recognize what has been called the antithesis, is often behind the temptation to to enter into unholy alliances of various kinds. Alliances that involve compromise between Christians and unbelievers, between light and darkness, whether whether that be in terms of religious alliances. Oh yeah, that's happened often in the past. In the name of ecumenicity, churches that are more faithful compromising their faith by joining themselves with churches that have basically turned away from the gospel. This is often the temptation between unholy alliances with respect to close friendships, which involve compromise, or or marriages. Marriage of a believer with an unbeliever. Intentions may be good. Jehoshaphat's intentions may have been good. But if loyalty to God is compromised, there's no doubt about the Lord's assessment about such things. We hear it. We'll give it uh, further attention to it this evening, Lord willing, in the, the words of Jehu. To, to Jehoshaphat, when he said, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? That's putting it pretty starkly, isn't it? But that's what was going on here. In Second Corinthians chapter 6, we'll read that tonight. We read, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. There's often such a temptation to enter into alliances, agreements, contracts, unions that are unholy and very often bring rather disastrous results. And that's certainly the case before us here. And that leads us to consider secondly, an unwelcome but faithful prophecy. We might call uh, a segment of this chapter a prophecy extravaganza. Because you have the 400 uh, prophets of, of Ahab. And uh, they put on quite a display. And they were false prophets. Oh yes. No doubt about it. They could use the Lord's name if they had to. If it was serviceable to their agenda. But they weren't really prophets of the Lord. They were prophets of Ahab. Prophets to tell Ahab what he wanted to hear. They were, their allegiance was to this idolatrous king. And, uh, they apparently put on a a pretty good show. Ahab asked them at Jehoshaphat's prompting, shall we go against Rahab or against Ramoth Gilead? And the unified answer was, go up, go up, three times, go up, go up and prosper. The Lord will deliver Ramoth Gilead into your hand. It almost sounds like this became kind of a a, a united uh, a chorus, perhaps a chant. Go up, go up and be victorious. The Lord's going to give you victory. They spoke with one accord. And then the leader, there's Zedekiah, he even provided an impressive uh, prop. He made horns out of iron and probably joined the dance. Go up and be victorious with these iron horns protruding, protruding from, from his head. You know, it makes you wonder whether this was a reflection of the memory and the knowledge of an apostate people who are actually borrowing biblical imagery and biblical language in the service of their own cause. I say that because in the book of Deuteronomy, we have, we have the words of Moses uh, blessing the tribes of Israel before they entered into the land of Canaan, and when it came to when it came to Joseph, right, and often Joseph is uh, uh, shorthand for the the northern tribes, the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, and others associated with them. And he is assured that uh, there would be blessing on his head, and the crown of uh, on the head of him who was separated from his brothers. And it says, and his glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with him he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Yes, that's a description of the northern tribes. And here there's a prophecy of of, uh, the strength and the power of uh, these northern tribes over their enemies. And here you have an apostate people who had turned away from the Lord and worshipped idols, and they're using these promises of scripture for their own cause. And it does appear that Jehoshaphat saw through this this charade because he does ask for a true prophet there in verse 6. Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? That's a reference to Micaiah. Micaiah, the man who who bound himself with an oath to speak God's words and only God's word as the Lord lives that's an oath right as the Lord lives whatever my God says that I will speak you will not be pressured to to join the choir so to speak the messengers that brought him uh, into this assembly uh, they, they, they give him a tip right they're kind of going to help him out and try to persuade him to help them all out listen The words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Therefore, please let your words be like the word of one of them and and speak encouragement. He doesn't fall for it. And when, when it sounds like he does at first, right? When he repeats their words, it's obvious that he's actually mocking them. He's mimicking their lies in order to expose them. If they're all saying, go up and be victorious. Because will go up and be victorious. And it must have been the tone of voice or the expression on his face that led Ahab to this ridiculous, absurd response. How, how many times shall I make you swear that you will tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Right. That's what Micaiah had been doing right along. And Ahab hated him for it. And now he acts as if that's what he wants him to do. But does he really? No. Not at all. In fact, Micaiah says, okay, you want it? Here it is. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. A shepherd was a name for uh, for kings, right? So it's a clear prophecy of uh, Ahab's death. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And then what does Ahab do? Well, he complains. To Jehoshaphat. It's like, I told you. He's against me. He hates me. He always prophesies things that that uh, are contrary to, to my well-being, my happiness. You heard it for yourself. But Micaiah is not intimidated by this at all, is he? In fact, he continues. And he, he proclaims a vision that really makes this little gathering at the gate of Samaria uh, fade into nothing. It's a vision of the throne room of God. It's not two kings in their colorful garments there on the threshing floor at the gate of Samaria. It's a vision of the throne of the Almighty God surrounded by the heavenly host on his right hand and on his left. And he says, who? Who will entice? Who will entice Ahab so that he might fall at Ramoth Gilead? And it's a passage that shows God's absolute sovereignty sovereignty even in such a way as to use evil for good. Because you can be sure that this this spirit that then appeared before him, something like the way the devil appeared before the Lord in the book of Job, and this this spirit said, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Those aren't the words of a holy angel, but God commissioned him to do that work. You know that God sometimes judges sin and unbelief with hardness of heart and deeper blindness it's a solemn thing but it's taught in scripture sometimes people god sometimes god gives people over to what's called judicial hardening and that seems to be the case here it's not simply an, an old testament phenomenon right in the book of thessalonians with respect to the the man of sin and his deceptive power it's described in that way That his coming is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among all those who, among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. God in his judgment, in effect, is giving people what they want, giving them over to the lie. And then in that very passage that I read, the, the consequences then described that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And that's a description of what took place also in this passage before us. The Spirit of Christ appears here in this passage in this faithful prophet, Micaiah. Now, Zedekiah, this leader of the false prophets, he still still resisted. Uh, the word mocking this prophecy. You hear it when he asks, which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? He doesn't believe in the spirit of the Lord speaking through, uh, Micaiah or himself. It's a, it's a, a cynical assault upon the very idea of the Lord speaking through Micaiah. He mocks this prophecy and Ahab rejected the word hating Micaiah for it as an enemy you might say the one man in that whole company in this instance who really was a true friend to him who was actually speaking what is true and he was hated for it how often does that happen hmm? how often does that happen in the world when christians speak what is true and are hated for it does it happen even in the church sometimes Could that be the explanation in some instances why people stay away from church when they can do everything else that they really want to do? They don't come to church. Could it be that perhaps they feel condemned every time they come to church? Because they're not walking in the ways of the Lord. This is the condemnation we read in John, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. They will not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. That's what Jesus faced among his own people. He said to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but me it hates. Because I testify of it, that its works are evil. Isn't that sometimes the bottom line explanation for the hostility that is sometimes directed to ministers of the word? That underlying cause is never the presenting cause. Isn't that sometimes the, the, the basis for the hostility that unbelievers show to Christians when they love them enough to speak what is right and true? It's our natural response to resist the word of God. And that's what Ahab did. but He was faithful. He was faithful to warn, to, for, to warn, uh, Ahab, to warn these prophets, to, to warn Zedekiah, to warn anyone who could hear him as they dragged him back off to prison. Take heed, all you people. He left them with a faithful message. To take the word of God to heart. In James chapter four, uh, we, we read, we read these words that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. That's a wonderful passage of the way the Holy Spirit yearns for the sanctity of his people. Because the context here is the danger of friendship with the world, right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. This spirit who is grieved Over our compromises with the word, who loves us so as to yearn for our consecration to him, to the Lord. The spirit of Christ, I believe, was also yearning jealously in the heart of Jehoshaphat in this sad story. Jehoshaphat had put himself in a perilous condition, a dishonorable condition for who he was. He was compromised but the Lord didn't abandon him. And we can see that even in this passage. Remember, uh, he still used Jehoshaphat to shine the light of his word on this situation, right? It's, it's Jehoshaphat that initially called for a word from the Lord. And when Ahab responded by summoning 400 prophets, Jehoshaphat wasn't satisfied. He says, but isn't there still a prophet from the Lord here? Jehoshaphat was instrumental in getting the word of God to shine on this situation. He was conflicted. You can hear it. You know, he still speaks in defense of Micaiah. Ahab says, I hate him. He doesn't speak what is good concerning me, but evil. And, uh, Joshua, oh, do not, do not speak thus. <laughs> do not say such things. It's a mild rebuke. Pretty mild. But he's not altogether silent. He's compelled to say something to stick up for a true prophet of the Lord. He's in an unhappy condition. He's conflicted. And it's the kind of condition, brothers and sisters, that we we want to try to avoid, kind of uh, compromise that we should seek to avoid or run from, to come clean, so to speak, to come clean in uncompromising commitment to the Lord, even whatever the cost might be, right? That passage that I read from 2 Corinthians, we'll read it more in full tonight. It says, therefore, come out and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean. And I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and my daughters. A call to consecration from the Lord without compromising with the world. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that we have no, uh, relationships with unbelievers? That no, we have nothing that could be a, called a friendship in any way? Does that mean that, that men or women that find themselves in a marriage with an unbeliever should divorce their, their spouse? No, no. It means that we need to be careful in our relationships, that we put Christ first, and that we don't let an unbelieving uh friend or co-worker or spouse draw us into a way of life that is contrary to God's will, to draw us into unbelief and compromise with him, but rather rather that we are consecrated created to our, our Lord and Savior. Well, the Lord willing, we'll consider more of this passage tonight. But, uh, I think it is important to, to end on that encouraging note that despite the mess that Jehoshaphat got himself into, God didn't forsake him. He's using him and he'll restore him. And that's good news for us. Amen. <laughs>